Welcome back to another episode of Sharing Air, where we discuss science and art, medicine and humanities, and everything in between, including the kitchen sink and my dishes. I am Andy Vasco, your co-host, who is Associate Provost and Director of the Transdisciplinary Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University, and I'm joined by... And this is Laurieann Farrell. I'm the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Claremont Graduate University, and it's wonderful to be back with Andy today and to hear about your dishes and what else have you been doing this week? Uh, it's, it's been a mad rush this week. Um, there is teaching going on this week, and there is committee work this week. Um, so I'm, I'm getting the best of all of it, but I'm actually getting ready to celebrate Passover this weekend. And it reminds me of last year when we were at this same podcast talking about Passover and the strange and odd relationship between the recollection of Passover and the Passover story and the feelings of COVID. And I can't say that um, it's, it's any less true now. I think about it all the time. Uh, yeah. how, was, how was your week, Laurieann? Well, it was just about as crazy. And I'm going to um, a Seder tomorrow as well. And of course, it's on Zoom and we never expected that to happen. I have a feeling this is at the same person's uh, house that I always go to. And this will be the second year on Zoom. And I don't think we'll get quite as like interesting about the plagues anymore. I think we'll just get through it. And I realized that, you know, last year we said, you know, next year in Jerusalem. And I think this year we're going to say next year at Gary's. I mean, can we just, can we just be at <laughs> Gary's, you know, and we'll, we'll work on Jerusalem later. So I had forgotten that we had gone through that, but yes, um, it's, it's been a year, you know, at one level, I, I, you know, it feels like it's been an eon. Um, it feels like I can't remember. I have people ask me all the time about things that before last March that I simply can't recollect. Do you ever have that happen? Yeah. So really interestingly, um, I was teaching this week and, uh, in, in the process of teaching, I, I was trying to do a, a kind of like intro into the session. And there, there was re reason to my madness here. Um, I had, I had asked the class, all right, where were you exactly one year ago right now? And what were you doing? And to kind of prompt that, you know, there, there's something to go back into to create a space that is vulnerable and warm and, and kind of empathetic. And it started off that I gave the example and it was kind of related to the particular moment one year ago. But as people began to share, it quickly bled into not the moment one year ago, but what the last 13 months have looked like or what the last 12 months have looked like. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of sharing, um, but it, it was very clear that people have been through a lot. Uh, and it's hard to think of what we were doing one year ago as a distinct moment in time, because for those of you that remember VHS tapes, it's like someone pressed fast forward with the three lines on the screen going through while everybody was talking really quickly. Um, during that time, and all we captured were the major scenes, we can't go back to a specific moment very easily. That's what I noticed. Have you seen this in your, in your classes, Lorianne? Well, how interesting of you to ask, because I'm, I'm not teaching this semester. Um, but oh, I noticed okay. that you pointed this out twice. So it sounds like um, you had some pretty good classes this week. I'm noticing more that in every kind of group meeting that I'm in, and I actually don't suffer from a lot of Zoom fatigue. I miss seeing people's faces. So, you know, it's, I don't have any, Zoom itself is not a, a terrible problem for me. Um, but one of the things I realize is that I've been, it's, it's that time of the year, it's that time of the semester when I'm a little bit late for everything. I start off about a second late and by four hours later, I'm now about 30 seconds late. And by the middle of the afternoon, I'm five minutes late. But no matter where I crash into in this meeting, 
it's always just getting started. And everybody's talking about when they got their vaccination, <laughs> when they're going to get their vaccination, what, this, what is their next vaccination. And I'm thinking, I, I keep speaking of, you know, like highlights, it's like, this has become the highlight. And I am, t- I mean, just in case you're wondering, I'm getting my, my second one on Monday, but um, I did want to know. I did. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, but the other thing that happened this week that made, you know, so I'm switching, switching gears so we don't start talking about these shots right now, but um, yeah. I had hand surgery this week, not a big deal. And we're not going dis- to discuss that part of it. It was an elective surgery that got canceled a year ago. And, um, and when, it, when the bandage comes off, I'm going to have like this perfect hand. Um, but I ruined it excavating and, you know, I had to have some mm. small surgery, but it was the first day full day in the one day surgery for Kaiser Permanente. And it was like coming back to some kind of a high school reunion. People are like high-fiving each other. And it was, I mean, as a patient, I felt entirely neglected because all I watched were people hugging and jumping up and down and, you know, sort of talking to each other and all excited about being back doing their regular work. So I asked one of the people that was supposed to be working with me to get me ready to be put to sleep, you know, you know, is this, you know, he said, you know, this is our first day and everything. And I said, oh, so you, have you been off work? And he's like, no, we've had to work over in the COVID crisis unit. Like, we're so glad to be back here. So like there, you know, to me, this was really striking that, um, you, you know, they see the end of their enforced work, you know, f- you know, you know, sort of doing COVID testing and giving out vaccines as getting to come back and, you know, take care of like, you know, little tiny unimportant elective surgeries like mine. Um, so it was it was great to be part of you know kind of a, you know the thrill of the the, the one day surgery crowd, but um, they quickly forgot about me. I was not I was not I was not the center of this joy. So that was that was my week. Um, I got a big bandage on my hand. Um, you know, I crashed a lot of meetings late and heard about people's vaccinations. Um, I've been watching the news about the world you know opening back up. And some worrying some news about the parts of the world and the parts of the country that are not. Um, and, uh, you know, all in all, uh, I, I feel I still in suspended animation to a certain amount, you know. Yeah, but, but the things that you're mentioning are encouraging that we are kind of, there, there is a little light. We're talking about vaccinations. These weren't the exact same conversations we were having a year ago. I can remember that. Um, I have to say there's a little retrospective um, uh, perfect vision that I'm starting to see, or at least people trying to have perfect vision in retrospect now. And I don't know if you saw the, the headline on CNN this morning, but Sanjay Gupta, you know, the, the I know who he is, but I didn't see yeah, this. Okay. Um, he has been interviewing former heads of the, uh, the medical team. So Anthony Fauci, I think Deborah Burks, um, and and the former head of the CDC and and he decided in in all I almost want to say sensational forms because it's not quite sensational. He I, I like what he reports on, but he decided that as a physician he is going to go in and speak to them as kind of a um, a prophet, and he'll speak to them in their language. So he's doing autopsies with them of what it was like during the time of the emergence of the coronavirus and working under the Trump administration in the CDC or for the National Institutes of Health or wherever they were working um, and take it apart as one would in autopsy because he knows how because he's a neurosurgeon. Um, And they will speak to him and then he will then relay that to us what exactly that means. So there there was a moment where he was... um, 
playing this this role of because of his training is able to make sense of something that seemed like it was not only difficult to make sense of, but because he speaks the secret code language, he will be able to now be a Rosetta Stone for us on what really happened during those early days. And there was a, there was a conversation he had with the former head of the CDC that is it's provocative in that it suggests that um, that the coronavirus, according to him, might have been something that was accidentally, or I think it was accidentally, um, linked out or leaked out of a a lab in China rather than. Oh, we're back to that. Yeah, we've gone back to the conspiracy, which then prompted lots of responses from the World Health Organization. And so it reminds me that every these themes keep coming up because this was also kind of the canon that fed into the anti-Asian sentiment around the world, that this was a, a virus from China, from Wuhan, that was repeated as, as this incendiary uh, idea to make people really view that this was not a domestic thing. This was placed on us and, and it shouldn't have been. Um, but it, it ties everything together and where we're back, you know, we've, we have come around in these ways of like, well, this could be totally false. There might be some truth to it. Um, it still seems that the scientific community is very much against that. And there have been a number of peer reviewed publications that have been published that suggest that the world health organizations come out and said, no, that's not the case. Um, but you know, these, some things are just that they're still there. They're still um, there from a year ago. You know, and actually another part of that story that is really kind of striking to me is um, Dr. Gupta's sort of sense of himself as a, you said a prophet and, 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 and I'm thinking he's, he's seeing himself as a translator. I mean, I, you know, like as a person who can actually communicate you know, move between two cultures. And in some sense, you know, um, I have a dear friend that whose motto about translation is that it always breaks the spine of the original, like something, something has to be broken in order to move from, from this one culture of scientific inquiry to the world of kind of a popular understanding of, of what is going on in a way that is not dangerously misleading. Um, And that actually brings me to our guest today, um, who you have the honor of introducing, but I think translation is, is, is actually one of the things that I'd love to talk to him about. Well, perfect, because today we are going to be joined by Kenneth Baxter-Wolf, the John Sutton Minor Professor of History and Professor of Classics at Pomona College. Um, Dr. Wolf is a historian of, I'm going to try pronouncing it, Montalité, who I'm going to ask what that means later, but I actually went through a pronunciation tool to get that, Um, who mines medieval Latin texts in an effort to reconstruct the mindsets and worldviews of their authors and imagined audiences. And he has specific expertise and interest in medieval Mediterranean studies, medieval Spain, early Christian views of Islam and saints and the ideas of sanctity. So um, Ken, welcome to the show. Did I pronounce it correctly? What my name? Yes, you did a beautiful I, job. Ken was right. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, having to know how to say mentalité is a, is an actual expression of mentalité. What right. exactly? You know, and mentalité you handled you handled very well too. Can you can you tell us what mentalité is? <laughs> well, the way, yeah, exactly. Well, the way that I use it is um, is more or less 
already covered by by the continued uh, description that you gave of what I do, because it really is about getting into the minds of of your historical actors by looking at their their writings, which which I consider, as other people do, to be textual artifacts, and then trying to imagine um, what the mind behind that artifact that 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 created it, in this case, a text, um, was was thinking how it operates, and and particularly then how that how that mind imagines mediating a distance between their mind and the mind of the reader um, whom they imagine that the text is going to be read by, whether it's actually read by that reader or not. So it's kind of a double-edged thing, um, a writing by, let's say, one of my medieval um, writers is something that captures presumably some way that they look at the universe around them. And at the same time, uh, it's written in a way that they imagine will not... um, will not fall on deaf ears for a reader who, again, may or may not exist. So classically, a monastic author writing with a monastic audience, let's say, there's certain presuppositions, there's a kind of a culture to the way they express themselves. And then my job is to try to get into that culture by using those texts, kind of unlock it. So it it almost sounds like to me that you have multiple levels of empathy that you're using as a tool. Oh, you're, of an empathizing with the text and empathizing with the audience. And then maybe with, with what you do, you're empathizing with the person who empathized the text, who empathized with the audience, so that empathize with the presentation of a, of a different audience. Is that far that, off? Or that's is that... well said. And can you do it again so I can get that down? Because I think I want to I include that. In we the will have this up later uh, <laughs> shortly that I hope that you just play the soundbite to all your family and friends when you're at your own dinner parties. Let's just call it multiple em- empathies. Yeah, I think, in fact, you know, some people, some historians have have tried to steer away from that. They, they feel like, well, as a person living in, let's say now the 21st century, but I remember the same conversation in the late 20th century, you know, how can we possibly figure out what people are saying in the past, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I think, you know, 95% of it we get just by being human beings, by being empathetic, by imagining ourselves in those circumstances, you know, when a child dies, a child dies and a parent grieves, you know, and it, it may have different implications depending on different historically specific factors. But I think, 95% 95% of that is going to be the same. And I don't believe that's led me wrong in too many cases. Um, even, you know, even humor sometimes in, in the Latin text that I translate, you know, it, it comes through and you can see it. And it's like a, almost like a private joke that you've, you've gotten because you've kind of gotten into the language and figured it out. And, and, and you think, wow, that's interesting that that would be funny back then too, that I can imagine that. But I often tell my students when they're reading, try to, Try to loosen your eyebrows so that when you read something that strikes you as odd or unusual, raise the eyebrow like you, you might in some sort of a vaudeville routine, right, where you're exaggerating your reactions. And then ask yourself afterward, why, why is it that it raised your eyebrow and yet it doesn't seem to raise the eyebrow of the person who wrote it? Or are they imagining it to raise the eyebrow of the intended audience? And then you're starting to get at something that that's that 5% of difference. You know, what is it that this expectation that somebody is, let's say, cured by miraculous activity is not something that we share as much as they did back then. And so that's a place where you get to explore and try to then pour yourself into their context 
and think about their influences and then be able to go a little bit further than your own experience. Now you're kind of experiencing their experience through empathy, as you say, informed empathy. Could that yeah, principle of informed it, empathy, Ken, could that actually um, in some sense be something that we could think about contemporaneously in terms of listening to people talk about things like their cures or their fears or their, I'm trying to think about um, how certain kinds of ways of, of, of reading and, and um, understanding other experience, you know, I love the idea of loosening the eyebrow um, that doesn't have to be a, a, you know, there doesn't have to be a disjunction with the past. I mean, it could be a disjunction with the person across the street. Absolutely. I mean, I think where I, where I get most of, I guess, the theoretical basis for looking at it this way, uh, insofar as it, I've even really articulated it, it tends to be in the world of social sciences and anthropology is a, is a, a, a classic connection that I make without necessarily knowing a whole lot about different anthropological theories. But I would think even in the realm of, of just ordinary therapy, you know, going to see your therapist, right? What is a good therapist, right? A good therapist presumably should be able to, to do a lot of listening and they should be able to probably put themselves in, in your shoes in some sense and try to think through you and, and help you with the way that you think but with an appropriate kind of analytic distance, suggest some things that might help you reframe the way you're looking at the world and kind of nudge you in that direction. We don't really do that with historical actors because you know they're safely dead. But but uh, but it, I don't think that the process is significantly different. I think the kind of an informed empathy. I mean, I, when I go into this, I go into it, for instance, having read similar texts covering, say, a thousand years of history, just bits and pieces here and there, some bigger, some smaller. So I bring a knowledge set to any particular historical actor that's bigger than, or I should at least say different than, the knowledge set that the historical actor, him or herself, has. And, and that, in some ways, might replicate more the training that a, that a therapist might have going into the session. They've seen it all before, though they haven't seen this particular case before, right? Um, so I've got a strange question then to, to tack on to that, Ken. Um, if you kind of have this ability to um, provide, or excuse me, if you have the same mindset maybe that a therapist, a good therapist might have with this kind of training, do you think that those of us that are going through um, our own struggles in this current era with all that is going on is this kind of the coward euphemism. Uh, do you think that like you can talk to your local historian and maybe not have to work through insurance? And I don't mean this sarcastically, but do you think that there are tools that are built into somebody who has been trained in this way that would actually bring some perspective to understanding um, in, in a way that's not just a, a five-step program that uh, an, a government body or uh, a, a medical office has put out of how someone can can work through these things on their own? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, if I really knew the answer to that, I could probably make a little bit more money on the side than, than I'm making right now applying my trade. But I think, I think 95% of what a historian or another kind of critical reader um, will apply to a historical mind is going to be similar to, I think, what a what a social scientist might apply to a, a, a therapeutic patient or to some contemporary culture that they might be studying. Um, I think I think what's 
what's special or different about history. Um, in in some ways, it's about getting outside of the of the box that we that we inhabit ourselves as participants in a very specific culture of our own, and and therefore then stepping outside, whether it's to go to a different continent or a different you know a different um, kind of study group that is contemporary or one in the past. You know there are some leaps that need to be made. Ninety five percent the same, but how do we then how do we appreciate that five percent? Um, regardless of whether those percentages are anywhere close to what, what is actually the case, just the sense that, that empathy will get you, will get you a long way. I think in, in terms of what actually history brings to it, um, I don't really have any, any confidence in that idea that knowing the past helps, uh, you, uh, prevent repeating the past. I've heard that a thousand times. Oh, it's horrible. Hears on and they like to say that. Um, and I, I, I just don't that. think that's the case. Yeah. It's sort of like saying, well, I'm a human being and, and, you know, and I'm going to die and, and that's going to somehow give me, you know, some sort of, some sort of ability to, to overcome that, you know, in some previous life or to dispense information that might help others manage that too. The fact of the matter is, is that the one thing history really gives you is a sense that each one of these little cultural worlds, whether it's the microcosmic person, him or herself, that's, that's spinning out that world and participating in it, you know, that's only going to last as long as that person lives. And, and, you know, then it, it's going to be gone. It's going to, there's going to be different versions of it in their culture. Um, but, but it's basically the, the world ends at that particular point in time. That may be the, the kind of sobering thing that a historian brings to, to this subject simply because generally speaking, historians like me anywhere are dealing with subjects who have been through this process and, and their process has ended and, and we're still in the middle of it. You know, one of the things that I've, I wonder what you think about the, the more, the kind of interesting variation on the, the horrible, you know, those who do not know the past are condemned to repeat it or whatever, which is the thing about that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I, <laughs> I, I think the rhyme is in that 5%, right? That space, a rhyme, you know, a rhyme basically um, is sort of sounds like the thing that came before, but isn't quite. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it sounds to me like, you know, in many ways you're asking as a historian, your students or people that read your work to, to sort of think through that 5% gap. Um, mm -hmm. You know, why do these two things sound alike? Um, that, that catches my, that catches my attention, but there's something, it's not the same, you know, which is the power yeah. of the way, you know, metaphor and rhyme work in, in, in poetry. And, and I think that there's yeah. that that's that, that's that moment. I, what you call the 5%, I call the, I, I call the, um, this kind of the, the veil that sits between us in the past. And every once in a while, like it's ripped open a little bit. And, um, it is the assumption that we understand them or that we've actually progressed from there that actually m makes us do bad history. Um, yeah. you know, that they, that they were benighted and therefore they believed that a particular saint would do this, that, or the other. Um, mm -hmm. it makes, it reminds me to always tell my students to think about what people will think 500 years from now um, about what we're discussing right now and our certainties um, yeah. and what that might mean. I mean, you work on saints I, hmm. and the idea that they are intermediaries and intercessors and that they possess certain kinds of, of um, power, I suppose um, that, you know, in, in some ways that, that can be something that we could see as the as the as the mindset of a of a, a, more, a more primitive or a less a less uh, scientifically 
scientifically educated age. Um, but it, it is basically a human impulse to find our Dr. Guptas, right? The people that move us from one place to another that have the capacity to communicate our needs and desires to someone powerful. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more in that sense. I think there's a real uh, a desire on the part of individual people to try to have some sort of a line on on things related to their mortality, things related to their health. Um, I think that runs deep. Talk about, you know, that 95%, right? Uh, and then the 5%, I guess, is what, as you, as you suggest, what's the, what's the nature of your source of information or what's the nature of your manipulation of the environment around you um, only in the last few years compared to all of, of history, right? Do we have anything like effective medical techniques. Um, um, so many of the ones that people thought they had in the Middle Ages that they might have either inherited from uh, from the past, from, you know, watered down versions of, of Plato or Aristotle, or maybe they've picked it up from, um, you know, from some other tradition that way. Uh, most of them we know are, are kind of completely wrong, you know, but they represent a way of looking at the universe and and they suggest a certain kind of, of angle for potentially manipulating, you know, famously by bleeding somebody, you know, and, and trying to cure them that way to get their humors restored, et cetera. I mean, we look at that, we kind of laugh at it, but, you know, there's a reason why, why people did that, because they felt that that was, that was their angle. In the Middle Ages, you know, generally speaking, though, most, most of the people were, were probably more inclined um, to focus on a combination of, of actual intervention based on their own experience or the wisdom in their particular village, let's say, and, and then appealing to some sort of supernatural force, uh, often in the form of a saint, to see whether or not they could, they could get the, the intended result from that. And yeah. as is often the case, kind of cross-culturally, you know, what, what we mean by a cure you know, is, is not as clear cut as we might think anyway. And so if you're predisposed to see something as being fixed, even if you still have a limp, or even if you're still bleeding a little bit, um, <laughs> then, then uh, you know, then, then that's a cure. And, and that right. fits into then this cultural framework that allows for the possibility of that being a mechanism that fixes people. Yeah, the I'm not dead yet, you know, Monty Python thing. Um, I'm curious, though, <laughs> in, in the five, in the five, in the five percent, I'm still stuck here in the five percent room. Um, you know, I'm thinking about the human response to what seems in the beginning intractable illness with with no with no way of recourse and death. Um fear of that. Um, we've, we've actually come across this question a lot talking to other people on this podcast and especially when talking to historians, you know, was there a way of being accepting of sickness and death that in some ways might be, if not superior, more rational than ours now, where we just simply are flummoxed and sent, you know, sort of spinning sideways at the notion that there's a disease that we can't immediately cure. Um, you know, is there, is there a way in which say the, the people that you studied, their mentalities have at least at some rock bottom level, the idea that, that, that aspects of sickness and death are out of their control and are best left to forces that we might now consider to be supernatural or non-scientific. I think there's a certain 
health uh, to their perspective of, I guess, what we can loosely call pre-modern societies, even though I think we're surrounded by them all the time, you know, even within our own immediate worlds, because people approach these things so differently. There's no one modern way of doing it, right? But we do have Mm -hmm. these modern tools that are all a very, very recent development. And they're the ones that the scientists and the Guptas and others, you know, really, really focus on. Um, the, the one thing that always strikes me, you know, people ask me, oh, you're a medievalist, you know, you, you probably wish you could be in medieval times, wouldn't that be interesting? And I think, well, no, would I want to be in a time where I couldn't get a tooth filled painlessly? You know, no, absolutely not. I'm very comfortable being where I am. And the only time I'd want to live it is the future or wouldn't have to go to the dentist at all. Right. So I, but, but when I look at, when I look at the middle ages, what I think that they in, in, in a sense, in a stereotypical sense, had down is that they had more explanations that they could provide, more narratives that, that mm-hmm. made sense out of suffering. I mean, the inevitable, you know, death uh, and, and sickness, um, nothing really can be done about them. You know, you can postpone death, but you can't postpone it indefinitely. Um, but, but isn't it a significant qualitative difference between the person who understands where they fit in the grand scheme of the universe, okay, whether they fully believe it or they're just told it every Sunday or fill in the equivalent holy day, um, but but they get a narrative that that is acceptable. And when they die, someone can repeat that narrative and remind the community of that narrative about you know where that person is now or what the point of their life was. And I feel like um, just imagining my own demise, you know, having, having gone through this too with, with my mother within the last five years at 97 passing away and trying to plan a memorial service, you know, what, what, what will we really say about that in a, in the world that I grew up in any way where, where God was not a regular presence and Jesus even less so. And, and so, you know, are we supposed to have a religious person conduct this funeral? I mean, that wasn't an issue. I don't believe, um, no. It isn't an issue for many people today, but it wasn't. It wasn't really an issue that came up a thousand years ago in in medieval Europe, right? And I in that have, kind of world, you know, are there secular versions of being able to pray for people's souls now? I'm sorry, Andy, I talked over you, but I've been. I, I, just think how little I, I think it's these new microphones. <laughs> this, Normally, I interrupt Andy every five seconds. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, I, I understand that when historians get together, it is especially when they can't normally get together. It's a nerd fest. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I'm stuck in my own world and in, in, on my own table with my own special microphone. But as we're talking and I keep thinking about all of these things that we're talking about are somehow related to this concept of translation, of as a translation of, um, of a context um, more than it is necessarily a con, but maybe just as much as it is a, as a translation of the specific object or the artifact. Um, and here's where my mind went on this. Last year at this time, Laurieann, we were talking about translation, same exact time. We were when the, our Passover podcast was about translation. Oh my God, and that's we ta- right. And we talked about mRNA and how that is translated into protein. That is mm-hmm. the instructions that become protein. And I thought we've got two different vaccines now. Uh, and I have got two different historians here. Um, I don't know the, your approach in life or your approach to, uh, to history, actually. I, I'm not too familiar, although I know about the, the mentalité uh, of Ken. Uh, an mRNA vaccine is one that's going to be closer to the original text in its manifestation. There's less room for error in the reinterpretation of it. The, um, 
the adenovirus vaccine is going to be a little closer in the context for the delivery of that text. It is mimicking what a virus does when it enters the body and how it gets into the cells. Um, like a, they, it's, it's a cousin. It's, it's a distant cousin of maybe a coronavirus, but it's a, a way that they can use the viruses. Knowing that one is more related to a context and one is more related to an original text, which would you choose to have as your vaccine? Uh, I'm going to throw this at Ken first. I know what Laurieann has, but if you had to choose and you were given a choice of now knowing an adenovirus being contextual and, and uh, an mRNA virus being textual, um, which do you think is more important for a successful response? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, in 1988, uh, Jesse Jackson in the Democratic Convention speech um, famously said, uh, I believe this is where it happened, um, he said, a text without a context is a pretext. And so <laughs> I've always felt like if you're, if, you're going to, if you're going to talk about text without context, then, then you're, you're probably never really going to, you know, have put the tent pegs in that little tent you're building and the wind's going to blow it away, right? So on the other hand, um, if you can't talk about a text without a context, you sort of can talk about a context without a text as long as it's a general context. So maybe I'm thinking context is more fundamental. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote for that one. Wow. That's, you know, what's interesting is that having framed it that way, I'm answering completely differently. So I think that's one of the interesting beauties of this kind of, you know, this kind of like this kind of broadly drawn conversation. Um, you know, I, I immediately think of something like a like a like a dartboard, like I want the accurate thing, not the thing that's sort of around the edges. Um, and so one of the things that that. I, you know, in, in, in my own teaching, I, I worked a lot on translation of the Bible and the first sort of Bibles translated out of Latin, you know, as, 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 as Ken knows very well by the, by the followers of Wycliffe, um, you know, they were word for word and they don't make any sense at all, but they are accurate. The word for word is accurate. You know, it takes context, as Ken says, to make it make sense. So thinking of thinking of the vaccine as either wanting it to you know to get in there and 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 be a perfect imitation as opposed to sort of you know sort of in some ways deal with the with the effect of a virus is that do i have that right andy they both have the same so to be very very clear they both have uh, very similar, if not the same, genetic sequence written in them. The mRNA is one step closer. So here's the nuance, but I think it's everything in the nuance. The mRNA is one step closer to the protein, which is the thing that your immune system is going to respond to. So it is closer to the actual instructions that our normal immune system uses when it's creating antibodies, whereas the delivery system for the mRNA vaccine is more artificial. Like we're coming up with um, nanoparticles to deliver it. So it's it's taking instructions that are closer to the original and getting them to the body. The mode of delivery for the adenovirus vaccine is viruses, are, like we have adenoviruses that attack our body. Some Most of them don't do anything. Sometimes they, they do some damage, but most of the time they don't do anything. But they know how to get into our cells and inject the information that it's carrying. But there are more steps where things can go wrong in between um, the information that's given through the adenovirus because it carries DNA and it carries some other things that aren't going to be as pure for the 
replication of those instructions. So that's the nuanced difference which, where, where it's everything. But if you were to, you know, kind of turn up the, the, the gain on that and, and separate them into two binaries of a category, one is more related to the accuracy of the original, which would be the mRNA, and one is more lo- related to or how I'm interpreting it. The, I love so part of that. Yeah, part of it, I would, I would, I don't know if this changes my answer now I think about it, but, <laughs> but, but when I think about how I want to deal with, say, my own medical health, do I want to take a pill for something that is very specifically associated with one, say, function or part of the body? Or do I want surgery that will take care of that one function or part of the body? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, that, in my mind, which isn't particularly medically oriented at all, except as far as my own medical condition is concerned, um, and then I'm really involved. But but in, in a way, I feel like if I take a pill, it's affecting everything in my body in some way, shape, or form while it's fixing the problem. And, and some part of that I don't like. And it's one of the reasons why I almost take no pills, right? Um, but that may or may not be connected to what you're talking about, but it does seem like a contextual broad change versus a, a pinpointed, a specific, almost surgical strike. You know? Right. I, the surgical strike was the word that I was thinking of, um, but I'm also thinking of, of antibiotics, which is not the same as vaccine. And one is like things which are actually very specifically, you know, take out a particular um, bacteria and um, others that are more broad spectrum, try to catch everything in its net, right? Um, I think actually though, Andy, what's what's interesting here and, and, and what makes you, this, this little quiz you gave us really fiendish, by the way, thank you very much, um, <laughs> is that, you know, both, both, both Ken and I are not so easily dazzled by this question as to not ask you, you know, is there a difference in their effectiveness? Because you're asking um, us right. how we want our effectiveness to be delivered. Well, it, it depends on what you, again, like we, we could go into the academic critical questions, which are important, depends on what you consider effectiveness. But, you know, the in terms of the studies that showed how many people developed COVID after each type of vaccine, well, we know that with the two doses of the mRNA versus the single dose of the adenovirus, you have more efficacy with the two doses of the mRNA. Um, oh, well, then I'm going with mRNA. But do we know that... As, as Ken kind of pointed out, you're doing things to the entire body versus a more surgical precision. Um, we don't know if there are effects that are going to be different between the two that happen afterward. We don't know if there are, you, you might create more you know, short-term protection, but no, not better long-term protection. So the, the other questions that go along with it, because this was um, authorized for emergency use, was we have to remember that this was an emergency solution, not the best solution. So we don't know a lot of the other questions that go along with it. We just know of how to how to stop the, to kind of plug the leaks or, or stop the bleeding. Uh, uh, yeah. Can you 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 given that you have this, I think very very real, you know, sort of concern about you know what you're what you're doing with something that you put in your body. I'm curious for all of us. I mean, you know, I I I was actually I was re surprised. I wasn't thinking when I went. To see, I knew this would end up being a conversation about going to get my vaccine. But um, for, for all of us, but so just let me let me return to the, the, the cliche of the month. But, you know, one of the things I, you know, was I was saying that you have nothing to do while you're waiting. So you start reading the materials if you're if you're either wise or unwise. And the, the power of the fact that this is, an ex, you know, we're in the middle of a big experiment really had an effect on me. Right. The, the, the paperwork that they give you that explains what's going to what you're about to take 
goes into great detail about how this has not yet been approved in a certain kind of way, right? In, in some sort of final, you know, we're in, we're in the part, we're in part of a rollout. So we're, it made me, because I had a lot of time to wait, um, start thinking about how much all of medicine in many ways, because each one of us responds to things differently is a protracted experiment in how something, you know, begun in laboratory work and gone through sometimes very extensive testing will still, will still in some sense interact with my very particular self. Um, maybe that's a, you know, maybe we're getting kind of far afield from thinking through how one feels sort of, um, as you know, part of a culture, right. but I do think it's relevant, though, to when you think about how these tests, I mean, the ink is still wet on all of them. And all of a sudden there's there's universal distribution. So, you know, if if that isn't a, a lab person's dream, right, just to be able suddenly to take this thing that's maybe barely tested, although sufficiently tested, apparently, according to Fauci, et cetera, um, but to be able then suddenly to use it and to, and to have it actually not lead anybody to die as a result of it? I mean, has there been any cases whatsoever? I mean, this is um, how many how many of these drugs are people, say, still studying after, you know, 10 years, 15 years of use, or is it all just kind of considered to be collateral damage at that point in time if somebody dies? I mean, this one, this is fresh, and, and we are all a part of the experiment. It's it's pretty heady. I feel like it's like partly like like a new a new theology, right? It's working even though we can't. It's not sufficiently tested, right? Well, I, my question my question for the historians again is: um, Have are we repeating the same mistakes that others have? In that um, we we are given the little piece of paper that says this is all an experiment, but are we actually able to cognitively understand what that means for us, or are we putting our own decision-making in the hands of, as you mentioned, Ken Fauci, he said. Uh, and and, and is, is this something that in the past people have been, uh, certainly we can look at medieval or early modern um, eras, say that there was a moment when people paused and said, you know, this is uncertain. I am going to prototype and play with it and figure it out. Or was the need for certainty and entrustability in another uh, voice to make a decision for them the thing that helped them deal with this major unknown. Oh my God, well, this is that I mean, Saturday Night Live thing, Theodoric of York, Medieval Barber. I know. I was thinking Steve Martin. I was thinking that. <laughs> what rhymes with Fauci? Could it be that? Nah. Nah. <laughs> um, when, I, when I think about what you just said in relationship to the Middle Ages, I think about uh, some of the work that I've done with regard to miraculous healings associated with shrines, right, in the Middle Ages. That is, uh, there'll be a person who's deemed holy, they die, and through this interesting presupposition that it dominates late antiquity in the Middle Ages, they believe that the body, the remains, uh, have a certain kind of connection to re retain a connection to the saint in question to the point where it becomes kind of a conduit straight from the remains physically here on earth, often, you know, the, the focus of an actual building or an altar, a shrine, kind of a conduit that goes straight up to heaven or wherever this particular disembodied saint might be with Jesus's ear and able, therefore, to say, oh, you know, this person really deserves your attention. The person who's praying at my remains, you know, could you please uh, do them a solid and, and cure them of that particular malady? And that's, 
that's in in a in a sort of a silly way, but that's that's what medieval Europeans thought about what was happening when they sought the intercession of a saint to cure their particular problems. Um, and so the issue then, the most similar thing to what you're talking about is if there is some question about the saint's ability to do that, or if those relics were not deemed um, to be legitimate relics, um, famously um, an early and important uh, saint by the name of Martin of Tours, who died in 397 and would spend his time preaching in the area around Tours in France among all the pagans who weren't quite Christian yet. Um, there was, there was uh, some activity in a particular area where people uh, were experiencing a lot of power in association with these bones, and there were some healings, and there were people writhing in the dirt, and a lot of interesting stuff going on, which we can't really figure out exactly what it was for reals, quote unquote, but, but that's what was being reported. And so he went in, and he, he basically prayed and asked for some inspiration and determined based on then a conversation that he had apparently with some sort of a demonic force, that this was really just the bones of a robber and a murderer. And therefore uh, the devil had duped these people into treating them as the bones of a saint. And therefore this shrine had to be dismantled and the, and the bones had to be burned so that no one would do this again. Um, this, is a, this is a kind of an intervention that's sort of parallel to what you're talking about. Nobody's really questioning that intercession works, but they might be questioning whether or not one saint is better at it than another saint, whether they might have particular jurisdiction over a particular kind of a malady, or whether that person is even a saint and people might be mistaking di demonic or diabolical power for celestial power. That's what so they're testing. They're testing, actually. It's, it's like the story absolutely. about figuring out which are the pieces of the true cross, you know, with, with Constantine's mother, right? Which ones actually cure. So it's, it's yeah. as if the, 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 where we're in the 95% is the idea that you just don't take anything, even faith, no. just on somebody's say-so. Well, you have here's to have the proof. thing. So when you look at beginning in the 13th century, early 1200s, you actually have papal commissions that go out when a saint dies and people claim to be healed at their remains at the shrine. The commission will actually get people together and ask them, so what exactly happened? You know, what was your condition before? What was your condition after? Um, you'll get witnesses. What actually did you say? Did you invoke the name of the saint? How do you know it's the saint that did it? You know, if you were also at the same time taking all of these herbs, you know, how do we know? <laughs> and this, this really interesting kind of a multivalent approach to health emerges. Um, one in a, in a set of canonization records that I that I translated has a mother whose son falls off of a horse and breaks its arm. It's a compound fracture. And the the mother ends up pretty horrifyingly, but the mother ends up actually cutting off the protruding piece of bone and then somehow stitches it up. And the arm somehow ends up being more or less usable after that. I can't even imagine the horror of this situation. But in the same time that she's doing that. She's also invoking the aid of St. Elizabeth of Hungary, who's the saint in question. So the commission has to figure out, was it her crude orthopedic skills that fixed her son? Um, or was it an intervention by Elizabeth? Had she not tried and just 
prayed to Elizabeth and it knit all by itself, that would be one thing, right? Same thing happens when you invoke three saints because the first two seem to be pretty slow, you know, then finally the third one, it heals. Is that because it was well-timed? You know, you mentioned the third one right before the healing happened, you know, and then what do you mean by healing, right? Could this kid really use his arm or had it just stopped bleeding? You know, um, it's really interesting to watch the people in a, in a more of a social modality try to figure out what the meaning of all of this is. That, it sounds that like something that would, people would go for a Templeton grant for now, right? To show that this well, combination yeah. of prayer and, 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 and medical intervention yeah. is what works. You know, honestly, Ken, what you're describing is um, a mid- Middle Ages version of a randomized control trial. <laughs> um, and the when I think about when what we talk about in terms of medical humanities, it, it really makes us uh, realize that medicine isn't just science. And it's never just been science. Although we in, it's always integrated. Scientific process is always integrated into medicine. And so this medieval example you're giving is still medicine. And in fact, they're being scientific about it by asking whether or not the herbs went along with, you know, uh, a saint's blessings uh, to, to make something work. But these things have are just taking on different contexts uh, in our in our current era where we will listen to someone like Sanjay Gupta tell us how, and I, I will never forget this video, of how to properly use alcohol on your groceries as you're unpacking them on your kitchen counter. I mean, he oh. demonstrated that for us last year at this time. Hmm. Rubbing yeah. alcohol, I take it. Yes, yes. No, whiskey. He was he was enjoying it. I think the I think the social context is is key. I think whenever I think about yes, I'm getting the virus, you know, I I just want to be able to show a card so I can get on a plane, you know. I mean, that that's that in a way has nothing to do with medicine. It has nothing to do with confidence in the treatment or anything, but but there's some power that comes from being able to show that you have you've done that. You know, public health for instance, you know, it's 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 a powerful thing if you get everybody kind of agreeing to do the same thing, whether or not it's exactly what needs to be done in some ways is kind of not the point because socially you're either then someone who goes along with it and you're a good citizen or you, or you don't, and you're a bad citizen and it, and it leaves the realm of science altogether and becomes like you say, that point at which, at which the social and the, and the psychological kind of run up against, you know, hard science. And that thing that you wave to get, you know, your vaccination thing will become a form, a kind of relic or a kind of proof, like a kind of scallop shell from having made the pilgrimage, right? Um, Yeah. And a a point of contact with all the people around you. I have coffee every morning at, uh, at the local coffee watering hole in Claremont. And virtually everybody in that group is older than I am. It just happened to be that way. And oh my God, just to get them to talk about something other than, you know, which vaccine did they get? What did, they get this <laughs> what did you feel like? You know, how long were they out? What are they sore? And I had a, a Zoom call with all of my cousins who also tend to be older. And it was the same damn thing. We gave each person two minutes to say something about their life because they're in Detroit or they're in Rochester or they're in Northern California. And all they could talk about was their vaccine. So if you think about gathering around the shrine, right, and then somebody, some is an interesting one, too, about a child who's who's uh, mute and uh, and there's an intervention. They go to the tomb. They take some of the dirt associated with the body of Elizabeth. They rub it on the kid's face. 
and and suddenly the kid is starting to make actual audible noises, right? Well, it's not exactly you know like my fair lady in terms of its ability to to enunciate. In fact, they make the point that the commissioner said we couldn't understand what the child was saying, but its father could, and and that just kind of blows my mind. Again, the the social the kind of negotiation that goes on in that situation to figure out whether or not there's been a cure here. And of course, you've got a papal commission asking you and you're probably playing up to it and saying, oh, I think I have something I want to share too. Um, there's so much going on that's not science, that's social. Right. And, and there's and, been so much work done in sort of the history of medicine about that social dimension of being able to produce proof. And, you know, the, the word of the words you know, the word of a gentleman, for example, in 17th century England, in this kind of kind of proto-scientific age, is what is needed to make sure that um, the experiment is seen as, as valid. So it's also about the veracity of the people that they're that they're interviewing and and what kind and, and, and what kind of social context underscores that veracity. Um, and I've seen seen that as well. There aren't many people of blue blood who are interviewed in these. These are mostly paisanos in the area around Marburg, Germany for this case. But but there are ways in which different experiences are valorized. So when a person wants to make a vow to a saint um, in order to be cured, let's say a quid pro quo, sometimes mm -hmm. they don't feel qualified to do that themselves. So they find a local nun to do it for them. But if there's no local nun, they go to a local widow. And even though the logic isn't explained, it seems pretty clear. And that is that this local widow is probably the only one in the village that, that people are pretty sure, okay, is, is no longer having sex. And right. therefore, they're one step mm. closer to being an appropriate intercessor, just a little cleaner than you might be, okay? And so you give her a little bit of money, and she's the one who becomes the spokesperson with the saint for your own particular condition and desire. It's remarkable. And it's so, it's so I, I find an extraordinary kind of social logic in this, right? It's about, it's about who yeah. you trust to talk to, you know, it's just like Marian devotion to Mary, the mother, you know, whom Christians think of as the mother of Jesus. Why wouldn't he listen to his mom if she yeah. was coming with a special, you know, I've got a son, he needs to listen to me, right? And um, right. it, 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 so it's built in the logic of everyday experience. A son will listen to his mother or son ought to listen to his mother. Somebody who is who's leading a pure, pure life is 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 a better spokesperson. Um, it yeah. you know, so in that regard, now I feel like we're we're we're, we're back to 95 percent. That makes sense to me still. We yeah, still absolutely. we still seek out the people that we think would be best. Um, I mean, you know, you, you heard Andy try to do that. I mean, he, he tried to make you into a therapist, you know, because you, you, you felt very, <laughs> you know, you, like you felt very valid all of a sudden, you know, and, and, um, and, and, and thinking about what, what that might mean all of a sudden, the logic of that, uh, hit Andy. Um, I feel like, I feel like this is where uh, a plug for Ludwig Feuerbach comes in because he had a really clear sense that that theology is basically anthropology with a capital A. And if, mm -hmm. if it isn't, if you can no longer think about your God in human terms, then chances are you really have deprived yourself of anything positive associated with the whole idea of God. And that, that's really clear when you think about the kind of comfort that you get with family relations. You know, you have a, 
traditionally a you know a dad who spanks you and a grandma who 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 indulges you and and all of that ends up getting expressed i think most obviously in my world in the kind of catholic tradition with all of its fulsome kind of anthropomorphisms that are just that are just wonderful to behold and and ultimately really comforting you know and then and then the question is well you know is that getting back to a point I made earlier, when you acknowledge that kind of metaphysical dimension of your own life and your own social connections, doesn't that make the world richer in the long run? Now, it doesn't mean that I can instantly say, yeah, that that makes sense. I think that does sound therapeutically better for me. Therefore, I'll snap my fingers and become a Catholic. I don't think it quite works that way, but I, but I have found myself in certain moments kind of envying some of the subjects of my own research who seem to be pretty comfortable with this, you know, mm-hmm. but and they're in, not. I was just going to say, in, in mind, it's just saying, you know, I work in, in, in what happens after, right. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm partly a historian of the Protestant Reformation. And we've really, we've really begun to see it in a different way, which is the loss of that rich world. When you take yeah. away saints and when you, in some sense, disavow that human, that the human power of that, of that notion of connectivity then you yeah. you have done you have done a damage to a culture and a society. I think so. I think I think when I think of day of dead celebrations versus Halloween, for instance, um, in some ways a really good example. And since Day of the Dead is really coming back um, as a as a broader celebration in the United States than it ever was, uh, say, thirty years ago, or is confined to certain communities, but it really is a. I think people realize, gee, there's there's a relationship with death. That, you know, having Day of the Dead celebrations doesn't help you understand it anymore, but somehow you're all thinking together about it. You're all making making baked goods in the shape of bones and, and celebrating, yeah. you know, by putting uh, paint on your face. Uh, something tells me that's that's healthy. And it and that, too, is in some ways kind of reflected in in some of these depositions. There's one I would just I would just share to you with you. That's that's really uh, kind of arresting and it has nothing to do directly with a cure, although the person involved is somebody who falls into a river and when they finally dish him out, you know, he's all bloated and, and, uh, you know, has every, all of the indications of, of having, having drowned. And so they immediately, you know, start praying and ultimately he coughs and some water comes out and boom, he's back again. And so they consider that a cure. We might consider it, a, you know, a, a last minute intervention of a kid in a swimming pool, let's say, but they imagine it to be a cure. And one of the interesting things in the depositions is that it becomes clear that when this person came to, one of the witnesses to the miracle tells the commission that when the person came to, he asked that person, what was it like for you there? Which is a really interesting wow. question to ask. And the guy's response was, I don't remember. And so in that one tiny little moment, you have, you know, basically your, your you know, popolo minuto sorts in, in, uh, in Germany asking somebody who has just died and come back, you know, what was it like? Are they thinking, is it like the local priest says it is? You know, it was it like hell? Was right. it like heaven? Where were you? you that boredom from which no that, one returns. Yeah, taking that advantage of that little moment and thinking, hey, this guy may know something from direct experience that everybody's just told me I'm supposed to believe. And it just, it's a passing moment in the depositions, but it's, I think, a, almost a, that could be a focal point for the beginning of some kind of a book on, on, uh, 
medieval thought in, in, in a way that you and I don't think about it, you know, like people looking for evidence for these kinds of things. Oh, but we still are. I mean, that's the, you know, the search for a kind of certainty. Maybe that, you know, we were thinking that some in some ways today's theme is intermediaries, but I also think we've been talking an awful lot about certainty and, and, and the nature of the, the, the nature of evaluating certain kinds of certainties, whether medical or, or social. Mm-hmm. Ken, we have Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, Sorry. I, I, wanted, I wanted to throw in a thank you to Ken because of all the things we're talking about, I'm still holding on to the therapy component of this. And I do feel like you brought back a humanistic kind of therapy by um, explaining the theology as the anthropology with a capital A, which I'm going to have to look more into. And, and all of the explanations today, we know that you are busy. And I know Lorianne was being gracious enough to to re- allow you to, to move on with your life. But I also wanted to say, I will send you my insurance information. Um, and you can, uh, I think I've got three free visits still. Excellent. And I myself will just wish the two of you well in this new therapeutic relationship and hope to see you both, you know, in this, in the, in the, in the world that in which we see each other in the flesh soon. And that sounds to me like a kind of interesting hope and certainty, you know, what will it be like when we see each other in the flesh? Sounds to me like an interesting, um, either scriptural verse or some sort of theological statement. But um, Ken, thank you so much. This was, this was, we could, you know, obviously we could keep you forever, but, but, then you couldn't actually get the insurance stuff for Andy. Um, and, um, you know, we, we want to make sure that you guys get that stuff set up because we know the paperwork can really can really be crushing. Andy, I think we'll just skip the poem this week. I think this has been poetic enough and um, looking forward to our next podcast. Um, so I'll, I'll begin and you can end our, 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 our valediction. Thank you so much for being with us today with, with Ken Wolf. This is Laurieann Farrell. And um, you have been listening to Sharing Air. And this is Andy Vasco signing off as well and wishing you a wonderful time uh, of regaining your uh, senses, your psyches, your, your relationships, and your lives.